This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that we can be together. We've been away for a little bit in Israel and other places, and but here this morning and ready to take your questions and comments. Maybe you've been studying God's Word and there's a challenge that you've faced in your personal life or ministry and you'd like biblical counsel. Well, if we can help by God's grace, we will do the best we can. There's several ways you can contact us. You can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is tbl, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. Or you can call us direct at 843-525-1859, 843-525-1859. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question and we'll bring it up on the screen. Well, Rick, we've been away for a few weeks and we have just had scores of questions come in and we try to get to them all and sooner or later, by God's grace, we will, unless the rapture happens, then you won't need me. You can ask Jesus, but... Let's go ahead and jump in with both feet. All right. Sounds good. Dennis from Bluffton writes, uh, could Pastor Brogy please discuss why some current theologians disagree with the concept of impossibility? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Who would have ever thought some of the positions that the church is taking in our day? Um, there is a press called InterVarsity Press that was once a conservative press, and Uh, They teach uh, open theism now, that God doesn't know everything, uh, that he is learning, and it's just a sheer denial of his uh, omniscience, and it's really a blasphemous position, but that even books like that could be printed in our day is just incredible. But God warned that at the end of time, in the last days, there would be a falling away from the faith. And usually when people, let me just define some terms when they're referring to the whole concept of impossibility, uh, it's a challenge really to God's omnipotence that he is all-powerful. Now, it is true, the Lord Jesus plainly said it in uh, Matthew's gospel, I've just turned there, and uh, he is dealing with the rich young ruler who uh, is a real challenge, it seems, in terms of entering the kingdom of God. And the disciples uh, asked the question, then, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So if all things are possible, uh, the critics and skeptics of Christianity will posit questions like, well, if God is all, all powerful, how can He make a lar- Can He make a, a, a rock so large that He can't pick it up? It's kind of a nonsensical question, and it's really a said one out of ignorance. It's said mockingly to try to discredit the faith in the Holy Scriptures and the presentation of what God is like in the Word of God. 
But listen, God, to answer the question very simply, the answer is no. God cannot create a rock so big that he can't lift it up. And uh, it's really based on a popular misunderstanding of what it means that God is omnipotent. Just like in InterVarsity with their new open theism that they're promoting on their press, it's a misunderstanding of what God speaks about omniscience. When we speak of the omnipotence of God, what we are affirming is that God is all-powerful. But what we are not affirming is that God expresses that power in certain ways. So we, we have to hold both of those. He's all-powerful, but he may express that power however he chooses. And while God has unlimited power, uh, he's only going to express it in a way that's consistent with his nature. Sometimes when children come into the office, I'll ask them, um, when we're talking about the issue of faith, can God do anything? And can God do everything? Can God do everything? And almost always the kids will say, yeah, God, God can do everything. And I'll say, no, he can't do everything. Oh, Pastor Carl, God can do everything. And I'll say, no, he can't. What can he do? And they're kind of dumbfounded, and I'll take them to Hebrews chapter 6, and here it says, um, it's impossible for God to lie. Oh, yeah, or I'll take them to Titus 1, uh, God cannot lie. So there are some things that God cannot do, and God cannot do things that are contrary to his nature. Um, and again, it's kind of a stupid question. You know, it's like asking, can God create a two-sided triangle? It's a, it's a contradiction of, uh, of terms, but getting back to the rock question, a rock would have to be infinitely large, if you think about it, to defeat an infinite power. But there's no such thing as an infinite rock. There's only one infinity in all of the universe, and that's God himself. There can't be two infinities. Uh, A rock is a finite object, so to speak. Only God is infinite. So the question is actually asking if God can make a contradiction to which he cannot. So God is all-powerful. There is nothing impossible with God. Uh, But when we speak of the omnipotence of God, we are not saying that he expresses that omnipotence flippantly. He always expresses his omnipotence in a way that's consistent with his nature. All right, we have a live caller who's been waiting, so let's go to them, Rick. All right, very good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning, Pastor Brogy. How are you doing today? Uh, doing fine, thank you. Thanks for calling. What can we do to help? All right. So I have a question regarding alcohol in the Bible. And so I've been talking with some of my um, students in my class, and they, in, they're Christians, and they believe that um, it's okay to drink um, alcohol. And so they don't believe that modern-day wine is strong drink. And so my question is, how does God define in the Bible what strong drink specifically is? That is a great question. And some questions can be answered rather plainly from Scripture. Some uh, questions that people ask have to be understood in their cultural context. For instance, Jesus said you are blessed if you wash people's feet. Well, uh, Rick, you wash anybody's feet lately? Uh, no. no. Well, I, I don't think Jesus was saying that we should physically, literally get down and wash people's feet. I mean, he was in that culture because when you traveled, you were either on a dusty road where your feet would get dirty or when it rained, you were walking through liquid mud. Uh, for the most part, uh, no paved roads. Occasionally, the Romans had some 
a paver system of sorts, but your feet got dirty no matter what. And so one of the customary expressions of hospitality and care and really humility and servanthood was to wash someone's feet. So when I understand the cultural context, it makes uh, a lot of sense. In addition, uh, Paul says a woman should have have her head covered in church. Now, if you know Community Bible Church, we're deeply committed to the authority of Scripture and applying that authority in our lives. Yet I didn't really see, I'm not sure we had anyone with a head covering on last Sunday. Uh, is that because, oh, Rick tells me there was one lady. Okay. So, um, but generally speaking, not. Now, in some cultures today, when we first started going to the Ukraine in the late 1990s after communism had fallen, uh, you could look out uh, in a congregation of virtually any church I would preach in, and you could tell who was married and who was single because all the married women had their head covered and all the single women did not. And to have your head covered, like in uh, 1 Corinthians where Paul addresses this issue, it was an expression of submission under your husband's authority. Um, That was the cultural expression. It doesn't really carry that for the most part anymore. In fact, today when you go to the Ukraine, just 20 years of changes, uh, that has almost, but not entirely, but almost has passed away, except out in villages and small towns. Again, what is timeless, though, is the principle that a woman is to be under her husband's authority and she is to respect her husband. That's the timeless principle. So when we come to the subject of strong drink, one, we know right off what he is not referring to. No one can say, well, by strong drink, he's saying you shouldn't, you know, take whiskey or vodka or rum or bourbon or No, the distilled liquors are not created and invented until almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed. Some would say maybe 800 years, but that's a little bit up for grabs. But at least 800 to a thousand years after the New Testament is written, does someone come up with the idea of how to create distilled liquors so that the content in the alcohol is basically tripled? Um, So, again, I have to go back to the cultural context, so I know what it cannot mean right off. So what does it mean? Well, two things are clear that your friends need to think through. One is God does condemn drunkenness, and two, he does condemn strong drink. So what is strong drink? Well, it's not any of the distilled liquors. So you could have naturally fermented wine or beer that would be considered strong drink. How do I know that? Well, one, logically, I think you can argue that, but historically, you can argue it as well. There's uh, an article I have on my website at searchthescriptures.org, and it was actually written by a guy named Robert Stein, like a beer Stein, but he was a deeply committed godly believer. I think he's still alive. I tried to visit him a few years ago when I was on the campus at Southern Seminary, but he was not in his office He still was, at least a few years ago, an adjunct professor there. But I think he uh, he may have gone home to be with the Lord. I need to check into that. In either case, he wrote a fantastic article that would never appear today in a Christian publication like Christianity Today. It's in the 1973 edition of Christianity Today. You can get it off my website, or you can Google it and pull it up as an old article. But what he does a great job doing, and he's certainly not the first by any stretch— 
is he uh, shows what strong drink was meant to people in the early centuries of the Christian faith. And you can go back even to the Greeks before the Romans, and uh, you can go into ancient literature written by Aristotle and Pliny and a number of other people. And strong drink they considered was just naturally fermented uh, alcohol or wine or beer. And so even in that culture that was often pagan, uh, because they didn't want to have an alcohol problem, people who are drunks are not functional people. They don't make good fathers and good husbands, and so they would typically mix their wine and water ratio, sometimes four to one, sometimes five to one, sometimes eight to one. They considered it to be barbaric in one ancient writer if you even mixed it one to one. Uh, What's the thought there? Uh, The thought is, is that if you just drink regular fermented wine or alcohol, you're going to get buzzed. And it becomes addictive. That's the problem with it. It's addictive. Let's, first of all, dismiss the idea that someone is an alcoholic. If by that you mean he has an addiction, great. But if by that you mean he has a disease, then that's not so great. Because God doesn't really call drunks alcoholics. He calls them drunkards. And he says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. God cannot hold someone morally responsible for something that they caught as a disease. And yet he excludes drunkards, as in Galatians 5, from the kingdom of God. Now, anyone can be forgiven, and such were some of you. He will go on. Paul will say those who belong to Christ, when he gives a list like that in Galatians 5, have crucified the sin nature in regards to its lusts. There's a new direction. We're not speaking here of perfection. Could a Christian go out and get drunk? Yes. Could a Christian have a couple glasses of wine and get buzzed? Yes. And that's why Paul says, walk by the Spirit, that you might not carry out the desires of the sinful nature. And he speaks to the fact that the sinful nature and the spirit are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things that you please. When you're born again, you receive a new nature, and so the believer has a conflict within. Now, some Christians today, at least they call themselves Christians, have no conflict at all within for the simple reason they've never met the living God. They don't really have a desire to obey. They don't have a desire to live for Christ because they've never been born from above. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace alone. But the faith that saves and grabs hold of that grace is never alone. It expresses itself in a changed life. Now, with that said, um, think logically for just a moment. Uh, Now, I think this young caller has probably never had any alcohol, and that is great. And I hope you never have it drop. Um, But with that said, the first time someone has a glass of beer or a glass of wine, I can tell you they're buzzed. They're buzzed. They're silly. They're buzzed. They're laughing. Why? Because their system is so sensitive to that first glass of wine, it has a huge effect on them. I wouldn't say they would be out and out drunk where they're staggering or slurring their words. They might be there on the third glass, but they are buzzed. In a buzzed mind, the law says so well is a drunk mind. And what is the greatest of all the commandments? The greatest of all the commandments is you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
listen, if the greatest commandment is to love God and included that is to love him with your whole mind and you've got a fuzzy mind, then you are guilty of breaking the greatest commandment. Why do Christians want to drink? Because they want to be buzzed. They say it relaxes me. It gives me a good feeling. What they're really saying is that God is not sufficient by his spirit to deal with anxiety in their life, that they are going to the world's way to deal with worry and guilt and anxiety rather than God's way. Now, it would be wrong to say, one, that all the wine in the Bible is unfermented. That's just a stupid argument, and even the casual reader of Scripture will know that when Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, that obviously at least some kinds of wines in the Bible can make someone drunk. Uh, There are two words for wine, oinos and yayin. There's a third one, but those are the two principal words in Hebrew and in Greek that are used. The Greek word oinos is also used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And depending on context, it can refer to brand new, fresh squeezed juice. They didn't call it grape juice, they called it wine. But it didn't take very long, especially in a warm climate without refrigeration, without any preservatives for that fresh grape juice that they called wine, sometimes put adjectively as new wine to ferment. And then there is wine that is fermented, and that would be considered strong drink. So to say, one, that God forbade the use of alcohol would not be entirely accurate for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus, in an illustration with the Good Samaritan, He has that man in his parable taking wine and pouring it on the man's wounds. Why? Because that's like uh, an antiseptic. It's like a germ-killing agent. And then he put oil over that. That's kind of like a a bandage of sorts, and it keeps the dirt out, and uh, it helps uh, protect from any kind of infection. Jesus never uses an illustration with error, so there's a legitimate use of, of wine. Um, In addition, God in Proverbs 31 said you can give wine to a dying and despairing man. It's the Hebraism. It's not talking about two distinct circumstances, but uh, one circumstance, a man who's dying and despairing. And so today we do the same thing. If I came up to you and said, here, here's a hit of morphine, you'd say, man, you're dealing drugs. What's your problem, pastor? But if I were a medical doctor and you were in the hospital and you were in intense pain and I gave you a hit of morphine, that would be an act of mercy. And so, again, that's a, um, a legitimate use of strong drink as a painkiller in the early centuries. And that's why, among other reasons, strong drink could be called a blessing in Scripture. And it is a blessing, especially in light of the kinds of water that they had. Uh, the water would be delivered in such a way that it could make you sick. There are some countries of the world that I go to that I do not drink the water under any circumstances because the delivery system or sometimes the source of the water is less than pure as in America. I've brought people with me and I'll say, don't even brush your teeth with it. I said, wet your toothbrush with a bottled water and then rinse out with bottled water. And they don't take me seriously sometimes or they're not sensitive and out of habit. They reach down into the sink and and they end up getting sick for several days. However, missionaries 100 plus years ago used to carry a wine satchel around their neck and they would squirt a little bit of wine into the water. And technically it's not the alcohol, but it's a substance that's activated by the alcohol 
that kills the bacteria and makes it safe to drink. And so, um, again, that was a legitimate use of strong drink. And so very often they would mix the wine in a four or five part ratio. Now, the burden of proof that it means otherwise comes back to your friends to show otherwise. Not only do we have secular literature that forbids the use of strong drink, we have Jewish and Christian literature. Uh, There is a source called the Mishnah. Uh, For centuries, the Jews would pass on the, uh, the, the law, and then they would often pass on what's called the oral law. And the oral law was basically saying, well... This is how Moses said we should apply it. They would pass it on from generation to generation. Like anything else, some of the things that they said Moses said, clearly he didn't say in light of other scripture. And some Jewish people put more uh, credit and trust in the oral law than they do in the written law. So it's like anything else. Tradition is only authoritative if it matches with the word of God. But again, it comes down to washing feet. It comes down to head covering. What did it mean in the original audience? I was um, So in the Mishnah, uh, lest you be guilty at one of the Jewish celebrations of using strong drink, they dictated that you mix it in a four-to-one ratio. That's how the Jews understood it. Recently, I was in... Jerusalem, and I was in a Jewish family, and uh, they were um, celebrating uh, Sabbat, their Sabbath meal. And uh, this particular Jewish family, they used grape juice. Uh, Why? Because um, it's available. Uh, I was in another home for Sabbat in a prior trip, and they used what they called sweet wine. What was sweet wine? Sweet wine was basically 1% alcohol. It's as low a percentage you get. A lot of the wine that you buy today at Walmart or the liquor store or wherever you want to purchase it is anywhere from 12 to 24%. So this was like super low alcohol kind of wine because why? They did not want to be guilty of using strong drink even in the festivals that they had. Uh, there's a second century A.D. manual called the Didash. It's one of the oldest pieces of Christian literature outside of biblical manuscripts that we have today. And the Didash, again, it's very instructive that less when celebrating the Lord's Supper, and the Didash is kind of a pastoral manual for a second century A.D. pastor, how to do pastoral work. When you go into the pastorate, very often, sometimes in seminary or from a fellow pastor, you purchase a pastoral manual. Pastor says, I've never done a funeral before. What do I do? And so he looks at a pastoral manual. I've never done a wedding before. Where's everybody supposed to sit? How do I deal with it? So there's pastoral manuals. Well, they had the same thing way back yonder. Unless they be guilty of using strong drink, they mix it typically in a five-to-one ratio, five parts water, one part alcohol. So the burden of proof... For your friends who say, well, that's not what strong drink means, okay, show me. Why do you believe that? And again, logically, logically, the first time they have a glass of beer, a glass of wine, they're buzzed. They are guilty of breaking the greatest commandment. Someone says, hey, well, you know, I can drink. I've been drinking it all my life. It takes me three or four glasses to get there. Oh, so God wants you to sin in the interim until you get to that point. Not to mention, I think you can argue for... um, the refraining from the use of alcohol today, not only because we don't need it to purify water. So again, that's was the principal use of wine so that you didn't have to boil everything once it fermented 
it purified water and it made a safe delivery system. There's just scores of literature that just is overwhelming. And again, the burden of proof for them to show otherwise is on them. Show me. Show me why you say that. You're just making something up. You think, oh, yeah, I'll just make it up. Oh, that's not what strong drink me. I'll make up what I want to so that I can uh, have my booze. Beyond that, one, I think in the culture that we live in, it has the appearance of evil. And God says abstain from every appearance of evil. Some things are not evil, but they have the appearance of evil. I mean, what if um, what if I'm in a restaurant and you see me there and I have a glass of beer on the table? You might think, oh, Pastor Brogy, he, he's getting buzzed tonight here in the restaurant. Look, I want to abstain from every appearance of evil. I don't want my testimony in any way, shape, or form to be diminished or hindered. Number two, not only does it have the appearance of evil, it can cause a brother to stumble. And so... Um, I was in the Ukraine and they were using real alcohol in the Lord's table and real fermented wine, like 25% proof. And I said, this is not wise. They said, help us out, pastor. I said, number one, you have grape juice that's available. Number two, I said, alcoholism, or let's call it what the Bible calls drunkenness is a huge problem in this country, just like in most of the former Soviet satellites, of course, vodka is the choice of drink in Russia. You talk about problems with alcohol. Russia is covered over with it. it they, it's, it's pandemic, the alcohol problems they have in that nation. And so you have all these new Christians who are getting saved out of alcohol drinking backgrounds. And now at the Lord's table, you're going to give them a hit of wine to give them a craving for something that they need to repel and be far away from. I said, that's just not even smart. And so um, my point is, is that we need to think our way through this carefully. It has the appearance of evil. It can cause a brother to stumble. What if you see me? Well, I just have a glass of wine. You know, and I meet these pastors who say, well, I don't drink in public. But I'll have a glass of wine at home with my wife. Oh, yeah, that's a real good model for your kids. Well, dad can drink or the pastor can have a glass of wine. Why can't I? And now you create a model that, look, if that child goes out and has a glass of wine and now cracks a car and kills someone or kills himself, you've created a huge problem or you've created a hunger for something that God doesn't want them to have. You can cause a brother to stumble, especially people who are coming out of alcohol backgrounds. And beyond that, does it really glorify God? Look, do you really, truly want to endorse this industry have you looked into Anweiser Bush and all these wine companies? For the most part, these are very evil, evil, evil people who are going after a generation. You know, they're there at all the spring breaks in Texas and Florida providing all this free beer and, you know, kids are getting drunk. They're being immoral. Um, this is an evil industry that sells itself with sex and getting buzzed and, you know, be a responsible drinker. Don't drink and drive like they're doing us a favor. They're taking down a generation. And honestly, I don't know of a pastor in the country. I don't know a Christian in the country that God is using consistently. And I say consistently because sometimes God uses people in spite of themselves you know, Jim Baker and Jim Swaggart, even when they were living sexually immoral, people were coming to Christ. 
not like they might have, but they were coming to Christ. Why? Because the Word of God is alive and sharper and active than a two-edged sword. And Jimmy Swaggart, who blamed it on a demon rather than his own sinful flesh visiting prostitutes. Yeah, people still came to Christ through that tele-evangelist because of the power of God's Word. But listen, I don't know of any pastor, I don't know of any Christian in America who consistently leads people to Christ. As you're drinking, friends, when was the last time you introduced someone into the kingdom of God? Ask them some simple questions, and you'll find out, too, that not only are they not leading people to Christ, but they have no authority. They speak with no authority. They don't have God's pleasure and anointing over the words that they speak as they teach their children, and then they wonder why their kids grow up and they walk away from the Christian faith. It's really sad. So I spent a lot of time on that question, became a mini sermonette, but it's important, and I appreciate this young man asking it. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And um, Andrew and Kelly from Houston, Texas, right? We are at a church that had a faithful Bible-teaching pastor that has moved to another church in another state. Our elders have now made a decision to nominate a new pastor after a seven-month search. We found out tonight at the church members' meeting that this man has been divorced as an unbeliever and had no seminary training. We're concerned about these aspects of his life, although not trying to unrighteously judge him. He has numerous recommendations from other long-serving men in the Acts 29 network that our elders shared. That doesn't necessarily excite us. Our elders are in unanimous agreement and are very excited about nominating him. These men are elders that we know pretty well and have much respect for, so we're somewhat surprised at this nomination. They've shared that this nominee has a very warm, humble personality and really has a heart for the lost, along with being a strong leader. We have to vote next Sunday after he preaches. We have so appreciated your ministry and teaching and the growth that has helped produce in our lives. Could you share your wisdom on this matter? We don't want to be negative church members that are a thorn in our elders' side. We just want to obey God. Thank you. Well, in my opinion, your elders have not done their homework, and they have prematurely chosen someone, maybe out of desperation, maybe out of exhaustion, that they've spent seven months and they haven't found a person. Look, it'd be better to spend 70 months and have the right person than to have someone who's unqualified for ministry. So number one, you know, we live in a culture that is covered over with divorce, and we don't want to make divorce the unforgivable sin because it's not. And a divorced person can serve in any capacity of ministry or in the local church with the exception of elder and deacon because God is clear that he must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, literally. And if you're not sure what that means, Listen to my messages on 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, where I deal with, one, what qualifies a man to be an elder and what those qualifications look like. One, it's a man. I mean, this same group, before you know it, they'll be selecting women. That's where we're going next. You know, I I look at J.D. Greer, who is the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and yesterday I saw an advertisement for a conference in... Uh, New York, and I thought, you know, it's really a shame that he's endorsing it because here they have two women pastors that are keynote speakers. So what he has done is, one, he's misrepresented his view of complementarianism versus egalitarianism. He says he's a complementarian. He is not. He is not, and he's leading the Southern Baptist Convention down the wrong road. 
and no one has the guts to stand up to him, and it's very, very sad. Uh, I shouldn't say no one, but most people, and they're just blindly, because of theological ignorance, following his new expression of leadership. The X-29 network, why would I be excited that they endorse that? Mark Driscoll was one of the key founders, and he, you know, wrote a book that was basically pornographic, speaking of things that are unspeakable. Of course, it came out of a heavily uh, tainted uh, pornography background. So he writes a book on, you know, intimacy for a marriage couple, asking them to do things that homosexuals do, just sick stuff. And, and he's, he's one of the founders. Well, I'm glad they removed him. I mean, what choice did they have after he crashed in ministry? But the organization, in my view, has no integrity. Yeah, the Book of Acts is still being written. I don't even like the title of the organization. But one, this man's not qualified because of his tainted marriage. Why? Not because God's down on divorced people, but because he's up on marriage. He's trying to protect it. Look, if I have no hair on the top of my head and I'm selling you hair tonic to grow hair, I I don't have much credibility. You're not going to buy from me. And I'm talking about how to be successful in marriage and and I'm on my second or third marriage. You don't have much. God, God wants to err on the side of, I wouldn't say perfection, but consistency. So this is a, a sad story. The seminary thing is not necessarily a showstopper. Uh, listen, there was a time when there were no seminaries, and the seminary was basically the local church. And in one sense, I think as a pastor, I have a responsibility to try to give our people a seminary kind of education. Uh, that's what a local church should do. That's not to say that there's not a place for seminaries, but what I'm trying to say is for centuries there were no seminaries. That did not disqualify a man from being a pastor. What disqualifies him is whether or not he's a novice whether or not he can uh, accurately, definitively uh, speak sound doctrine. Those are critical issues. Now, a seminary might help him and uh, move him along that path. So, you know, this is one of the purposes of, of elders, is they're supposed to protect the local church. And this is the blessing, I think, of rather than a single elder form of government, though deacons sometimes do it. But, you know, in a lot of churches, this is a Baptist church in Houston you're writing about, you know, a lot of churches, they, you know, they, they have these pulpit committees. And we got someone from the youth group who's on the pulpit committee and someone from the WMU and somebody from this group and that. It's just crazy stuff. Like, what are you guys thinking? You know, you need godly, mature, doctrinally astute men who can, you know, evaluate a potential pastor, not some kid who's in the youth group and he says, you know, yeah, I think this is a good idea. We we want Pastor Joe to be our new pastor. It's just crazy stuff, but that's the day that we live in because we are so untaught and God's word is not being exposited from the from the pulpit. And so people don't know any better. I'm not blaming the I'm not blaming the members. I'm blaming the pulpits and the leaderships of local assemblies. So with that said, if, um, if you know, they move in this direction and you don't agree with it, rather than to be a divisive person, I would just say I'd find another church. I would just go to another church. Before I left, though, I would 
wouldn't leave my elders hanging. I'd say, well, here's, here's what I think you did wrong. And here's the truth I, I think you violated. And have you studied this through? Why, why was it for 1,900 years? 1,900 years of church history, divorced people didn't serve in a local church pastor. Why was that? Were they ignorant for 1,900 years, and all of a sudden we've been enlightened, especially since 1970? I don't think so. I, I think that what is happening in our day is we are acquiescing to the culture. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want divorced people to feel bad. Well, you don't have to make them feel bad. 60% of the people in the church I pastor are on second marriages. Why? You reach the culture, the sins of the culture come into the church. And even if everyone was qualified to be a deacon or an elder, only a small, small, small percentage would ever serve anyway. So it's not like someone who's on a second marriage is a second-class person. But they're not to be pastors or deacons in the local assembly. And again, in these messages from 1 Timothy 3, I go through six ways in which people have interpreted the husband of one wife, everything from Roman Catholics on. And uh, so this is an important question to explore. All right, let's go to the next one. All right, our next caller says that some who teach you can lose your salvation use the last part of Romans 11.22. But we understand, once saved, always saved. Can you please explain what the end of this verse is actually saying? Well, this is uh, one of the benefits of Bible exposition. Uh, you can, uh, if you have a question and you, you know, I'm not here for the Bible line. I've been gone for a month. I think that's the longest time in a long time with uh, a trip to Israel and staff planning day and a few other things. Um, you can always, hey, has Pastor Brogy preached on Romans? You can get the Search the Scriptures app the app store and oh yeah he's got every single verse in Romans preached and you could go to Romans 11 and uh, you could listen to Romans 11:22 now again context is everything think about uh, what he is speaking about uh, Romans 9:10 and 11 in one word is Israel in Romans 9 he's dealing with Israel's election in Romans 10 he's dealing with Israel's rejection in chapter 11, he's dealing with their future restoration. And so he's dealing with Israel. He's really asking and answering a question that would arise from the end of chapter 8 that affirms our eternal security, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Will tribulation or distress or persecute? No. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this would be a natural place to address Israel because God affirmed his love for Israel, that he loved Israel with an everlasting love. And so 9, 10, and 11 are not a parenthesis in the argument of Romans as sometimes it is presented, especially by the Calvinists, it's a continuation of his argument that nothing can separate us from the love. And so he reminds them how God chose Israel in chapter 9, in chapter 10, why Israel is un, in unbelief, and in chapter 11, how God it opens with these words, the 11th chapter, I say then God has not rejected his people, speaking of the Jew, has he? Meganoita. May it never be. One of the strongest... Um, responses that 
you could give in New Testament language. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says? And he goes on to illustrate. So let me zoom down towards uh, a little bit later. In chapter 11, uh, when you get down to verse, uh, let's say, 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So Paul is dealing with how a Gentile should view a Jew and is reminding them that the root of the whole plan of salvation doesn't come from the Gentiles. It comes from the Jewish people, that they were the elect people of God by which to bring the Messiah. And that's the argument in chapter 9, not personal election, but how two nations are in your womb. That's the context of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's going back to the divine sonogram that you read of in in Genesis where Rebekah has two twins in this war within, and and God explains the meaning to her and how one is a son of promise. In either case, um, Israel is pictured as the root, and he reminds us that branches are broken off because of their unbelief, And we as Gentiles are able to be grafted in and enjoy the blessings of Israel. Not salvation from Israel, um, excuse me, not, not the kind of salvation that Israel had, as if to say that Jews only could be saved and Gentiles could not. That's never the case. Uh, God said in the Old Testament in Isaiah that the Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. But what was unique was that the church something that was hidden in the Old Testament, and so Paul calls it a mystery, is now brought together Jew and Gentile under one roof, and the dividing wall has been removed. And this is what was shocking in Acts 11 when Peter comes from Cornelius' house, and he goes and he meets with the elders in Acts 11 in the Jerusalem church, and they're blown away. Why? When he says, these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just like we did. Again, the shock was not that a Gentile could be saved, but that a Gentile could come into the same kind of close relationship that God had uniquely had for Jews and proselytes in the Old Testament. And so that's what Paul is arguing about here. He says, so don't be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root, referring to Israel, supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you either. He's talking about Gentiles versus Jews. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise, you also, you also, and it's in the plural, you meaning you Gentiles will be cut off. And again, he says, and if they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So he's talking about two kinds of people, and you can divide the world in different ways. The wise and the barbarian, that's one division. Another division is the Jew and the Gentile. And so when God looks down at the planet, there's two kinds of people. Basically, there's Jews and there's Gentiles. 
And as Gentiles, we are grafted in to the same blessings that God gave in special covenant to the Jewish people because of their unbelief. But we shouldn't be arrogant and think, well, look at them. They're not experiencing these blessings, and we're better than they are. Now, that kind of arrogance would lead to uh, the Gentiles that would come from our testimony of ending up being being lost. So we're being used as Gentiles right now by the grace of God and God's salvation plan. Right now, it's not the Jew who primarily is the spokesman for God. It's the Gentile. But once God has completed the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, actually two distinct things. But when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, when the last Gentile who's going to be saved is saved, God is going to catch up his church. And for the most part, all believe, well, every believing Gentile will be gone, not to mention the few Jews, because there's not a total hardening, Paul argues in these chapters, just a partial hardening. Uh, All the Jews will be gone. And so there will be a world with no believers in it after the rapture of the church. So what is God's plan? Well, among other things, he's going to go back working with the Jew. And so it will be the time of Jacob's trouble. And as we work through Revelation, we're going to uh, highlight a number of purposes yet as we come to the last two chapters. Why did God allow a great tribulation period? What was the purpose? There are five principal reasons, and we'll go through those. But one reason was to convert the Jews, to bring them to faith. And there will be, I don't know how he's going to do it, Uh, Damascus Road kinds of experiences, but there'll be 144,000 Jews who will be God's spokesmen, and they'll preach the gospel to the world. You won't be able to kill them. They are going to speak with such power, with such authority, that there's a multitude that no one can count that come to faith from the Gentiles. But it won't be the Gentiles primarily who are preaching. It's the Jews, not to mention the two witnesses, not to mention an eternal angel that will preach during these final last seven years of human history before uh, the millennial reign of Messiah kicks in. Good question. Let's go to the next. You know, it's kind of ironic when you think about it, the warning that Paul gives in chapter 11 of Romans. He's actually kind of addressing what a lot of people in modern-day theology have done with chapter 9, where they've given up on Israel and said God is done with them. Exactly. That's that's the spirit of arrogance. And, and listen, um, many of them are are cut off. We're not talking about, again, listen to the whole sermon. I have an hour-long sermon just on a few verses there. But the cut-off that he's speaking about is not being cut off from salvation, but from God's blessing and usefulness. So you think about my dear Calvinist friends. Very few of them are sending missionaries anywhere in the world. You know, they can say, well, we believe in the sovereignty of God and divine election, and God's going to save his elect. Wonderful. He will save the elect, and the elect of the whosoever will, and the non-elect of the whosoever won'ts. But if you ask any missiologist, is the Calvinist reform movement, are they the people who are doing more baptisms with new converts? Are they the ones that are seeing missionaries raised up to take the gospel to the world? And any honest missiologist who has his finger on the pulse beat will say, absolutely not. It's not them at all. And so that arrogance, and it is arrogance, I, you know, and again, I'm, people can get mad at me, and, but that's okay. It's arrogance, and they are missing the blessing of God, I think, over their life. So, Rick, you're absolutely right. This is exactly what Paul warns about. Hmm. All right. Well, our next person uh, that wrote, 
asked, said, Hi, Pastor Brogy, could you please speak a little about textual variants in manuscripts from which we get our Bibles? As a believer who doesn't know Greek or Hebrew and cannot study the manuscripts, what should I know about it? What can I say to anyone who might bring up textual variants as an evidence for the Bible's unreliability? Well, I've taught a course on bibliology, and section four of the course deals with the subject of what we call textual criticism. Uh, And specifically here, you're highlighting textual variants. By a textual variant, what we are saying is, is that there are places where the manuscripts that we have, we don't have any of the originals, but there are places where there are differences in the manuscripts. One of the great blessings a few weeks ago, 10 days, 11 days ago, I was in Qumran. And there we looked out over these caves, and we looked at Cave 4 where the Isaiah scroll was found. And um, there in Qumran, you uh, had in 1948 a shepherd boy, you know, tossing rocks. And, you know, we used to like to skim rocks when we were kids, and I could see this shepherd boy. Let me see if I can get that rock into that cave. And he shoots it 20 yards. Bingo! And then he heard something break, and he discovered the first clay pot of some ancient scrolls that moved us from copies of the scripture. We're talking here just about the old Testament and some other pieces of literature. But when we speak of the old Testament, the oldest copy we had prior to that was about 900 years AD. And this moved us to about 200 years BC. And so for instance, we found, we, these folks found the um, Isaiah scroll complete. The whole book of Isaiah, complete. And they discovered that there was 17 variants in the entire scroll. And the variants that we're talking about were differences like in what today we would call a comma. Um, and in a few word spellings, like uh, in English uh, here in the States, we usually spell Savior, S-A-V-I-O-R. We used to spell it 200 years ago, S-A-V-I-O-U-R like they do in Britain, kind of like the word color, C-O-L-O-R or C-L-O-U-R in Britain. But today in America, we drop the U in both those words. Those were the kinds of variants that you had, a total of 17. And now when we come into the New Testament, we have about 25,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts, copies, by which we can authenticate the original. And basically, they're 99. 8% in agreement. So textual criticism, it's not attacking the Bible. It's a study of manuscript copies where you're trying to ascertain what the original reading was. Uh, some have falsely accused textual, textual critics of saying that, well, we have, um, uh, we started with 100% of the Bible and we're trying to find the original 98%. And that's actually just the opposite is true, is what we have today is 102% of the Bible, and we're trying to find the original 100%. When you're in seminary, one of the examples they'll often give you is a verse that reads between Luke 6.4 and Luke 6.5, and there's an insertion there, and I brought it up here out of my course on bibliology, and it says, on the same day, he saw a man working on the Sabbath, and he said to him, man, if... On the one hand, you know what you are doing, you are blessed. But if on the other hand, you do not know, you are cursed and a transgressor of the law. Now, of 
the 5,000-plus manuscripts that we have on Luke, that is only found in one manuscript. So what would that tell the textual critic, that is, the person who's trying to ascertain uh, what the original was, that since it's only in one manuscript of 5,000, that that's what we would call a scribal note. And that's the challenge. Um, If you look at my Bible, um, when I have my quiet time, sometimes in the morning I'll write things out in the margin that God has ministered to me in and a little notes out there. Well, they did the same thing in the early centuries. Of course, Scripture was very limited and paper was very expensive. And so when you copied a manuscript, if you copied your friend's manuscripts and he included the notes in the manuscript, you might end up copying his notes. But they didn't write anything in a margin. If you looked at any ancient manuscripts, they're written from edge to edge. They didn't waste a paper, any paper. They didn't even put periods and commas in to save room. I mean, it was all just solid letters from end to end. And sometimes, too, like a person, they might come to the thing where it says Lord Jesus, and in their mind, I can't write Lord Jesus without writing Christ. And so they write Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they want to affirm he's Messiah. And so in their copy, or maybe because they've memorized verses where it is Lord Jesus Christ, they put Christ. But then when you study other manuscripts, oh, it's not there. Here's the point. Take all the air out of the balloon. Um, The fact is, is when you look at all of the comparisons, it changes nothing. Suppose I got a, um, a letter from the president of the United States. I'm a teacher of a class, and I dictate it to my class of 50 students. And when I collect them all, I want to you know, see their grammar. Oh, some misspelled a few words, and others forgot to cross a T or dot an I, or maybe someone omitted a word or, or, or wrote the word twice. If I ended up losing my original copy that the President of the United States sent me, and I only had those 50 copies, I have no doubt I could construct the original. And so what I'm trying to say is that we have a trustworthy Bible. And even where there are a couple of places that are variants, and you could put them all on one page, it affects absolutely nothing doctrinally, and it has no impact whatsoever on the authority or what we call the inerrancy of the Bible. But when we speak of inerrancy, we are saying, of course, that the original manuscripts are without error. But when you have non-inerrantists today, though you've got to be careful because they can put the word inerrant in their doctrinal statement. They're using the same word but a different dictionary to define it. They mean something else. But what they are saying is that the original documents were in error because they were written by humans that were fallible and some of their sinful uh, tendencies and foibles made their way into the pages of Scripture. And that's heresy. And that's not what Jesus taught. Well, we're out of time. Thanks today for joining us for the Bible line. God bless you as you walk with Christ tomorrow night. Biblical parenting at Community Bible Church. If you want to learn more, come and join me tomorrow night.